I'm the Property Funder, better known as Michael Dean, and this is the Property Funder podcast. I'm a successful entrepreneur, investor, NED and advisor. As co-founder of Avermore Capital, I'm best known for having financed over a billion pounds of property developments and investments by value during my career so far. During my time in business, I've come across an incredibly broad spectrum of successful people all with their own unique experiences working in a variety of industries. I want to speak to these people and learn more about them. I'm not looking to have the world's biggest podcast, so if just one person benefits from what my guests have to say, then that to me would look like success. And if you are that one person, then you should probably not tell anyone about this. Welcome, Elmarie. And what's your full name? What's your business name? And do you want to describe what your business does? Yeah, sure. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Um, my name is Elmarie Murray, and I'm the CEO of a company called Go Crisis. And um, it's really hard to explain what we do, especially if you're sitting next to someone on an aircraft. Um, but I'll give it in a in a little bit of a nutshell. What we provide is you can sort of equate that to what the Red Cross provides for governments. So it is a humanitarian service that we provide to corporate companies. Um, and it's a crisis management service. And what this is really is, let me use the example of a plane crash, because about 80% of our customers are um, governments and aviation. So if there's a plane crash, um, the number that comes up on the screen that says, if you're concerned about someone on this aircraft, call this number. That number comes to our company. Um, we represent the organization when we take those calls. So the calls um, is to for concerned people to say, um, you know, this is my name. I'm concerned for a loved one. And we gather a lot of information. Um, who are they calling about? Are they the next of kin? If they're not the next of kin, do they know the next of kin's details? Then the next service that we provide is we reach out to the next of kin and we provide um, a humanitarian support, which involves the logistics of um, flying people out to the accident site, all the information that they need, the accommodation, mental health support, practical support. Um, that's what we do under the humanitarian service. Then we do search and recovery of personal effects of an accident site or incident site. Um, we then process those personal effects and give them back to the families um, or the affected people. We also do, depending on the jurisdiction, the search and recovery and identification and repatriation of human remains. Um, and then the last service that we provide is, um, uh, oh, sorry, under the humanitarian, we also do um, injured survivor support, which is the medical side of things. We do that with a partner called MedAir. Um, and the last service is crisis communication. So that is all the communication that we um, that we as an affected company have to um, send out to um, all stakeholders on all platforms. So that could be the staff, that could be affected people, families, um, the community, the media, any communications that you've got to push out um, that is associated with the incident or accident, we support with that. That's in a nutshell. Wow. Um... I mean, it's a very, it's a very unique line of business. 
Um, I have a few things that I want to touch on, but just starting as a starting point, what got you into that line of work or the the, the business that you're in? And um, there, there's it's probably not the standard graduate pathway that most people would follow. So how how did you get into into that line of work and what were the steps you had to take to get there? Um, well, I can certainly say that it's nothing um, that I would have ever dreamt up um, as I grew up. So I wanted to be a vet and I wanted to be this and that. Um, but this really just um, unfolded, my career unfolded. I had to, when I went out of school, there was no um, funds for me to go to university. So I had to work and pay for my own studies. So I um, wanted to see the world and became a flight attendant. And while I was flying for those four years, I studied. So I studied business. I've got a BCom marketing, um, a BCom degree in business, but specializing in marketing and communication. So that, that was that side of things. Um, and then I moved to London. And one of my first jobs in London was working for a quasi-government organization. And I ended up managing quite different kinds of projects. But one of the projects that I managed was um, uh, working with London businesses on how they would prepare, respond, and then recover from a natural disaster or a terrorist attack. So that's how I got into that. Um, the company was then making a few people redundant. And at that point, I thought, gosh, that's probably going to be me. And I put my CV out into um, the virtual world. Um, I wasn't made redundant, but I got a call from an interesting organization that said, you know, they need someone with aviation background, someone with a marketing and business and communications degree, and someone who understands um, disaster and business continuity. Um, at the bottom of the job spec, it said, must be comfortable in dealing with death. And um, I said to my husband at the time, goodness, you know, that's definitely not me. Um, but uh, he urged me to go. He was very curious. And what organization could that possibly be a requirement? Um, so I went for the interview and I was completely I left the, the interviews, you know, saying that this is absolutely my calling. Um, I became completely and utterly obsessed with um, with with this kind of business. I didn't have a million years, you know, ever could I imagine that something like this, you know, exists, let alone that there's businesses that do this. Um, so that's how I got into this career initially. I mean, it's, it is definitely probably not the type of industry or career that I would imagine a lot of people would imagine themselves being in. You're your business effectively is dealing with very traumatic, very harrowing situations a lot of the time. Um, and I think that that naturally makes people very uncomfortable and would automatically make people run away from them, from that type of business. Um, how, how, are you, how are you wired differently or how have you developed yourself to be able to work in that kind of business environment? Well, firstly, the the, the contradiction um, is humanitarian and business. And that's something that I have um, early on in my career really struggled with. We're a commercial organization and we effectively make money when other people suffer. And that was something that was almost harder for me to deal with than the fact that I um, was faced with these very difficult situations and, and you know, human suffering, um, mm. because that that I can that I can do. But 
justifying the commercial side of things is really hard and I, I continue to to struggle with that um but I think what um what I now know after all these years is um it's the same as a criminal lawyer it is the same as a doctor you know you earn a living when other people are going through something difficult um but it's our job to make that easier for them it is our job to make whatever they are going through um easier and to give put you know from the organization side of the uh, the side of the um point of view sorry is for them to go something has gone wrong in their organization it is our job to put them in the best possible position to get through this from the people going through let's say it's an aviation disaster the victims of the air crash and their families it's our job to make a horrific situation just ever much you know ever so much more bearable by giving them the information the support that they need to go through this we can never change the fact that it's happened what we can do is how we respond to that is make that difference um and that is that is basically how um it has become easier for me over time to accept the fact that yes we are a business and we cannot apologize for the fact that we need to um earn an income after you know uh, by providing support to people um but it is doing it ethically it is doing it with passion um and it is also this greater good that i have some to have a cause bigger than myself that is helping us push our business forward yeah i i think i guess you can reconcile the the business component of it because of the fact that you're you're making something that's horrific and ultimately very tra tragic into the best experience and the most comforting and i suppose the softest blow possible for the people who are on the wrong end of that um and so i, I absolutely see, absolutely can see the the value that you bring to the clients that you have and the situations that you're you're involved in one thing though that the first one of the first things that i wrote down um when you started describing the business was um the question of how do you remain emotionally detached or how do you and i suppose your team remain emotionally detached when you are assisting the clients that you work with because i every single person every single story is so particularly in a, say an aviation disaster it will be so tragic and um and and it's it's someone's love someone's loved one um how how do you remain emotionally detached um in those situations um what what you know what do you experience and how how do you deal with how do you deal with the challenges well i think um for me personally it's different for every single person but for me personally i don't remain emotionally detached and initially i always thought that that is probably um a weakness for me but over the years i've learned that that's actually my strength um is to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes to say if this was my mum if this was my dad what would they need and how can i make this um very difficult situation easier for them so i don't remain emotionally detached and many of the team that i know that i work with certainly do not either where um where it's really important is for us to draw strength on our training um to know what we're doing why we are doing it um to know the boundaries of your role um because you can't you can't become the crutch for people going through something difficult you are basically a provider of information practical support things like that you can't um i mean to say that you're not um creating a bond with them is really unrealistic because of course you do but there's boundaries to your role that we have to uphold um and in our training you know we train everybody we we um we also follow the same rules of you know where those boundaries are 
Um, but one of the big things is to be able to, um, we deploy people for two weeks at a time. More than that, you become too ingrained and too emotionally um, involved in a situation. You need to be able to come back and go back to your life, go back to your own family. Um, that's really important is to have those breaks in, in what you do. Um, but I also think um, for me personally is to have a support network around you. It's so vital um, for me to be able to come home um, and to get back to my life and to get back to my my routine. Um, but I also draw strength from um, from that support network. So I know that if I'm on deployment, if we're working, that there's a team of people at home. Um, my husband, obviously my rock. Um, who looks after the kids, who does everything that needs to be done in the routine job so that I can be away and focus on what lies ahead. Um, so that's really important is um, is to understand that you're going to go like uh, to work in a response and to be involved in such a disaster changes you forever um, and for better and for worse. So we in this work, um, most emergency responders will tell you that, that you definitely bear the scars of the work that you do. Um, and we cry and we laugh and we move on and sometimes you don't move on. Um, we provide a lot of mental health support to our own team. I draw on that. Um, but what you have at home and the support that you have at home, for me, that is the most important um, while I respond is to know that I've got that support. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Elmarie, is that your both a mum, but also a very successful businesswoman. How have you, and you mentioned your husband, but how have you gone about more broadly enabling yourself to be able to have both the family and the business? Because I know that it's a challenge for a lot of working women. It's a, it's a challenge to be able to find the right balance uh, in being an entrepreneur, but also uh, you know, a mum and a parent and a wife. Um, that's a very good question because it's something that um, I work on every single day and I think it's finding that balance and sometimes I get it perfectly right and sometimes I don't and if I don't get the balance right I don't feel um, like I've accomplished what I needed to in a day or in a week. Um, the kids give me a reprieve from work um, and I'm very protective of my time with them and work gives me a reprieve from kids. So it's something that I could never not work, um, but I could also, and I've tried to be a home, uh, stay-at-home mum, and I found that um, almost more challenging that I do balancing being a mum, being a wife, um, being a business owner, um, but also being an individual. So I think one of the key things um, for me in my day is to schedule every single thing that I need to be scheduling in. Um, that could be, you know, I'm very protective of picking my kids up from school and taking my kids to school. I feel that that is something that I want to do and I don't want to delegate that to someone. Um, I think it's really important for me to schedule me time in, to go to yoga, to go to the gym, to be able to do my horse riding, for instance. Um, that is important. So I see myself as a sort of pizza pie and there's different slices to me that I need to fulfill to be able to be a whole person. And of course, my family is probably the biggest slice. Business is a very big slice. But in that has to be me, in that has to be my friends, in there has to be my health um, and my happiness. So if if I seem to be able to touch on all of those little slices that make a whole me uh, in a week, in a month, in a day, that seems to um, really uh, create a balance within myself. I mean, you, you touched on it there, on, on touched on it there in some way, but 
do you want to just talk a little bit more about some of the positive habits that you're engaged in that support your lifestyle and your your general sense of well-being and it sounds like that you it's it's quite a, a a big priority for you um yes and like i say some some days i get it right and some days i really don't um and the key is not to beat yourself up on that and you know try it try again the next day but for me it would be um, I am an early bird. Uh, people always laugh because 8 p.m. in the evenings is my bedtime. Um, and <laughs> it's uh, it's just a known fact. Um, but I'm really, I like to get up really early. I like to get ahead of the game um, to organize my thoughts. Um, I really thrive on that. So early bird is my way forward. Um, I also do yoga, um, which really brings my anxiety levels down because, um, you know, anxiety is one of those things that I've learned to live with as well. It's just part of who I am um, because there's always something I could do better, something I should be doing instead of this. Um, and it's just, you know, balancing that inside my head. So yoga, meditation is really important for me. Um, I try to schedule the gym in at least twice a week. Uh, I do my horse riding. Um, but like I said, family time is what really feeds my soul. Yeah, that's uh, I think a lot of people will resonate uh, with that as well. In terms of the horse riding, how often do you do you manage to get out on on, on your horse? Because I, I know that's something that you're, you're also quite passionate about. In theory, twice a week, um, but I'm lucky if I get in once a week, a good ride. Um, yeah. But we at least go down um, once or twice a week um, and uh, get on horseback. So we've got we've got four horses. And with that comes another logistical nightmares. Who's feeding them and grooming them and riding them and exercising them until I can find my way to them? Um, but it is my therapy. Um, when I'm grumpy, Conrad will say, you need to go to the horses. And I will then make <laughs> my way there because it just it is absolutely um uh, one of the things that I need in my life. Um, they've taught me so much. And do, do you use the the horses as one example, as an opportunity to bond as well with 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 any of your children, um, such as perhaps your daughter? Uh, is that a good opportunity for that? Or is she less interested in the horses? Yes, no, she's she's a better rider than me, actually. So we that's what we do together. And my son has now shown a great interest. We've always sort of put him on a horse and he's OK with it. But now um, on this weekend, it's funny that you should ask, because this weekend he was really the one driving um, us going down to the horses. So, uh, yeah, it oh, is, wow. you know, I need to get Conrad on a horse. My husband, the yeah. lawyer, Mr. Spreadsheet. <laughs> well, I, I'm uh, I'm I'm pleased to hear that your son, Charles, is. Uh, is going going for the horses and you've managed to keep him away from the golf course which may be uh maybe more of a disappointment for to your to your husband conrad but um well i think that's that's quite important uh i, I agree that it's important that you have that sort of balance in your life and um, because i think you if you don't have that it you struggle i think to be able to devote as much energy in the work time to your actual yeah. work um because otherwise if you're if you're constantly working i know you, there are anomalies who, who can do that but I think yeah. more generally, people need to have a, a variety of interests in their lives. Yeah. I, I want, I've, uh, Michael, on. sorry, I just want to mention something when you say that is I've um, I've listened to a um, a masterclass on leadership, um, which is on the masterclass app, and I can't remember the lady who presents it now, but she studied in um, American leadership. Um, 
And uh, the one thing that came out of that that was really key for me is that much of the biggest decisions historically, political decisions, whether you are left wing or right wing, it doesn't matter, you know, um, historical big decisions were made by leaders while they were on the on the uh, golf course, while they were on horseback, while they were walking, um, while they were in the theatre, when they were really relaxing and getting their heads outside of the, um, you know, the, the beehive to be able to think clearly. So that time away from work and time away from the desk serves your business really, really well. That's actually a very interesting point, because I think, although I haven't touched the bike for a few months, some of my biggest sort of life and work re revelations have come when I've been out on longish bike rides. Um, you, know, you can become quite contemplative when you're uh, when you're sort of in the middle of a, a one hour climb up a very steep hill. So uh, you start to question a lot of your life choices at that point. Um, exactly. I'm actually going to skip ahead to a, a, a question, actually, because you, you've touched on it a little bit here, which is um, learnings from your hobbies and personal interests that you've been able to apply to your business life. Have there been anything within those various hobbies that you've been able to apply I mean I imagine there's there must be a, a large number of them perhaps horse you know from the horses or from yoga meditation but or from the kids for example um, yeah I think the kids have made me realize that I'm a natural crisis manager <laughs> because I think one of the first questions I ask is have you got kids okay then you understand uh crisis but I would I'd probably go back to the horses and say I've learned there that um, being on a horseback being in nature clears the cobwebs and it clears my head um, so that I can get it back into the business. So that's something that I apply that I've learned. Um, I would also say the horses has taught me so much about myself, has taught me principles that I think is vital for business, but, but in life in general. And that is the horses, uh, you know, they sort of are a mirror. They reflect your emotions back at you. You know, people say horses can smell fear. Um, I don't know if I'll go as far as that, but they are such sensory animals. They can read our facial expressions. They can read our energy. So if you're in a bad mood, it does. It, it really affects your relationship with a horse. It really affects the the uh, how the horse will respond to you. And I think that is very much the same in life. You know. So if you are patient, if you are confident, if you're in control, if you approach something with a bit of gentleness um, rather than frustration, you get so much more out of it. Um, and I would say, for me, that works with my kids. If I'm in a good mood, I'm a good mother, and they are good kids. If I'm in a bad mood, we all bounce off each other. With work, with working with teams, with working with difficult situations, um, you know, in our business, there's a lot of egos involved, um, and it doesn't help anyone to rock up with their own ego. You know, you just throw a different, a, a, an additional ego into the mix. So what I've really learned um, through the horses and that hobby is how your state of mind really sets the scene for your outcome. That's really, really excellent observation. I, I think that my experiences with a horse are fairly limited. Uh, my sister-in-law is a very keen horse rider and uh, probably going about 15 years ago when I was visiting them, she tried to get me on to her horse, Madison. She's She's quite a tall woman, so it's a fairly large horse. And I lasted about 30 seconds before Madison threw me off. Um, so clearly I was I was projecting uh, possibly the wrong sort of vibes for for Madison. But I, the, the thing that struck me about what you're saying is that you are ultimately dealing with an incredibly strong, powerful animal 
you know and no matter how how well trained the horse is it is ultimately an 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 animal you know potentially wild animal and it that horse doesn't care about you're the ceo of this or you're you know you're the managing director of that um if you get on that horse by the sounds of it with the wrong attitude you're going to have a pretty bad day so uh and I suppose, as you've explained, how you go into these situations, you know, you you get out what you put in, and if you go in with a bad attitude, you're going to have bad outcomes, and vice versa. If you go in with a with the right attitude, you will end up with more more often than not with with better Definitely. outcomes as well. Definitely, it's all about the energy that you put out. Yeah. The animals the animals feed off that energy. They look at you for leadership and guidance. Um, but it's the same in work. It's the same with my kids. People feed off your energy and they reflect that back. So rock up with the right attitude and the outcome will probably be in your favour. No, I think that's really, really excellent. I, I want to just go back to um, talking about, you know, being a mum in business. And you said that you were, a, you were a, a, I suppose, a homemaker for a little while and it, it didn't work for you. Um, what, what inspiration or what guidance could you give to, um, you know, a stay-at-home mum who wants to get back into the workplace or wants to have their own business? You know, what what can you say to them to give them encouragement? Well, the first thing I would say is that being a stay-at-home mum is one of the hardest things that I've ever done in my life. Um, it didn't last very long. Um, it was really relentless. Um, but I would say um, the advice that I would say really is um, while I was at home with the kids, I never really stopped working. I, I still continued to do a bit of volunteer work. I still it wasn't very long. It was just with Jean Marie, my eldest daughter. Um, and I still did volunteer work. I still um, kept my head really in reading and keeping, um, uh, you know, just keeping current really with what was going on. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I have um, that I've learned watching my dad, for instance, um, he got his doctorate when he was 60. Um, I don't know why people don't think that they can reinvent themselves at any stage of their lives. Um, you know, we are evolving as um, as an individual. Your life evolves. The different stages of your life, different things suit you in that time. So um, I think to label yourself as um, a, a career woman or a stay-at-home mum or whatever that may be, or a sportsman or whatever that may be, I think labelling yourself as something is the biggest danger because that limits how you see yourself and how others see you. So to reinvent yourself and to be creative and to grab something you're passionate about um, is really important at any stage, whatever that might be, whether you want to be a stay-at-home mum um, or when, whether you want to be a career woman. I think you have to allow yourself to evolve as your life evolves um, and, uh, you know, to create opportunities for yourself. Um, but labelling yourself, I think, is the most limiting thing. And if you want to do something, you've got to shake a lot of labels in your own head. And, and when you went back into the, when you went back into the workplace, did you do it on a more gradual basis, or was it something where it was kind of rip the bandaid off and go in, you know, with with two feet? Well, I kept on consulting a little bit on the side, so um, so it was easy enough for me to maintain the relationships that I needed. Um, but I would say. Uh, it was a little bit of ripped the bandaid off because I was asked to come back to one of the companies that I worked for um, and I was ready to go back. And then I had to call them to say that I am pregnant again. So I needed to, you know, whether you like to hear it or not, uh, there's a known fact that, you know, if 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 there's babies on the horizon, 
um, that there's a great potential for the career to sort of take a back seat, which is natural and normal, and so it should be. Um, but I was very conscious of that. Um, and they said, no, it's okay. You know, we'll just we'll just wait. Don't worry. Um, so I kept on working and consulting. Um, and um, but at some point, I realised I wanted to do my own thing. Um, and that's when I did it. Is um, I built this business with two babies, one one on each hip, basically. Um, so it can be done. Um, and that's how that happened. Well, you, you say it so matter of factly, Elmarie. I, I, <laughs> I, I dare say it was probably a lot more challenging than that. Um, in that regard, do you want to expand on that? Expand a little bit more on the genesis as to how you built the how you built the business up, especially in consideration of the fact that you've got, you know, you have you're you were doing it in the, you know, as you say, with 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 a child on each hip. Yeah, well, initially it was it was easy enough because I did a bit of um, writing for um, for a few uh, publications. Um, I did a bit of consulting here or there, but it was all sort of you know in my own time. Um, but at some point, um, it became a little bit more intense. So I got called in for an incident. This is actually how Go Crisis was born. In fact, um, I got called in to consult on an incident. This was a product recall. It was a, a very high profile. Um, uh, incident. It was a kitchen appliance that had um, exploded and it was lots of graphic images on social media um, and very angry um, users of this machine. Um, it was, um, there was a recall. Um, but what happened is I called one of the organizations that I worked for that I consulted to and I said, look, I've got this you know, this big project, I can't do it by myself. Can you help? Can you provide me with a call center? Can you provide me with logistic support? And they basically said to me, we don't do kitchen appliances. Um, so I was left as a as a, a consultant on this incident completely by myself, having to cobble together resources to help the organization deal with that. Um, but I was there around the table and I promised them that I'll help. Um, and that's how it happened. So we put together a social media team. We put together a logistics team. We put together a communications team um, and we supported the incident. Um, and it ended up being a, a project over two years. So that's how business um, the business was started for me, is I actually pushed the business towards who is now a competitor. They said, no, thank you. Um, they weren't willing to help me, so I had to do it by myself. Um, and then when I got um, payment for this, I thought, do I now take this money and pay a portion of our mortgage off, or do I, do I really put this back into the business and build something great? And that's how that happened. Wow. And so... And did you ever take on any any partners or, or co-founders in the business or was it something that's always been it's always been you and uh, you know you at the top and and you've done it on your own as a sort of sole founder? So initially it was me for quite a while. Um, there was a time when my dad got very ill. He subsequently passed away. But at that time, I needed someone to really help me look after the business um, in terms of the administration, the HR side of things. And um, I needed support with that. So I did bring a, a partner in, um, but it was quite, um, you know, obvious at some point during COVID um, that I want to do this um, on my own. So I bought I bought my business back. Um, and uh, so there was a little bit of that. that we, that's probably a whole new podcast. <laughs> well, but yes, so I, that's that's what I will always be weary of partners. Um, but like I said, the business evolved. It was a really good partnership in the time that it was there. Um, it, it really served the purpose at that time. Um, but I wanted to go in a different direction. Um, and that, you know, so the business evolved, the partnership sort of ended very amicably. I have a lot of time and respect for um, the partner. 
um, or the previous partner. So, um, but you know, it, it's just how things evolved, um, and we just went with it. And and now, in terms of the 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 main operating business, are you have you are you able to be a, a more detached from the day to day operations, or are you quite still very heavily involved in in the minutia um, of everything that's going on? Um, again, it's a little bit of both. Um, we are uh, we're, we're a growing organisation. We're still a fairly small team um, compared to other organisations. So sometimes um, it involves pulling up sleeves and getting involved in the minutiae. But one of the things that is really vital um, that I want your your listeners to actually take home when it comes to managing a business is if you can trust and find people in your first line of management who you can absolutely delegate to and leave them and trust them to do their jobs it really you know frees your time to look strategically at the business um and what relationships what the next you know where is the business going to next um and for your first line of management to have that in place for themselves in the second line of management so i think finding people you can trust to do the job um, is really vital to be able to scale. The more you get entangled in the minutiae of the business, the less scalable it is. So it's really important to, to delegate, to trust people, to run with things, um, and for them to come to you when decisions are, you know, where there's decisions that they need support with, um, or where there's any um, financial consequences um, to the business, that's when I would say, please come to me for that. Um, but other than that, I've got to trust my team to roll with things. And I do, and it's great. Well, as an approach is one that I certainly have experience with and it's certainly the, the approach that I've myself and Zaheer, my co-founder, have have taken uh, with, with I suppose both the businesses that we co-own together. Um, so for me that resonates with me and makes a lot of sense. Um, certainly if you can hire good people and you can you, know, you, you empower them it, it makes yeah. your life easier and generally speaking the, the business tends to grow faster as a consequence of that. Um, yeah. So I think that's really, really valuable uh, feedback and advice for, for for our listeners, no question. Um, I just I want to talk also about- employ, To employ people who know more than you. Well, I think, again, something that resonate with me, uh, I tend to find that most people know more than me, so uh, that in my business, so that's always an advantage. Um, What's the biggest challenge you generally experience as a business owner or slash business leader? Um, you know, the, the thing that the a recurring theme from is as far as challenges are concerned. Um, well, I think there's there's stages um, as the business grows. There's different challenges, isn't there? Um, so for me, um, I would always have to go to cash flow um, as we grew and we started off as a small company. That was always um, something that I want to, you know, for people who are building businesses, um, that is one of the things that you have to plan for, that you've got to um, really be aware of how are you going to manage your cash flow because the business could die completely um, at any point. Um, you know, Conrad, my husband, is a mergers and acquisitions, um, you know, commercial lawyer, and I've watched him over the years of the projects. It doesn't matter how many zeros comes behind a business. If there's no cash to pay your people or to pay your rent to do what you are contracted to do for your clients, then, um, you know, it's going to really tumble down. So managing your cash flow and really anticipating and planning for that is vital. Um, but more overarching issue that I've had over the years of managing this business, um, for me, is this strive for perfection. I think that sometimes trips me up, um, is 
sometimes good enough is good enough, which is not something that I think my clients would want to hear. <laughs> but, you know, honesty is something that I think is really part of how we build this business. Um, our first airline, um, I called them to say, we've got 200 responders on our books. You know, they knew that we were small. Now we've got more than 1,500. But they knew we were small. And I didn't want anyone to contract with us not knowing our limitations. Um, but I think the striving, striving for perfection constantly is something that um, I have to sometimes make peace with. You know, you can't have every um, every single I dotted, every single T crossed. Um, if you really, really focus on those things, um, the bigger issues um, uh, will never get tackled. So that's something that I struggle with daily is uh, it doesn't have to be perfect all the time. Um, and for me as a business owner, the responsibility that I have as this business owner, because I always think about the salaries that I pay. They pay for the roofs over people's heads. They pay for um, my employees' children's schools. They pay for um, holidays. And I think that it to me, it's not just people. It's not just business. It's very personal. Um, and I take that responsibility very, very seriously. Um, but I would say that is the one thing that I wish I could just ease off my shoulders a little bit um, and uh, and not, uh, you know, obsess about that so much. But I think that's my biggest challenge is knowing that I'm responsible for so many people's livelihoods. No, uh, I think these are very common themes amongst entrepreneurs and certainly things that resonate with me and things that I experience as well. Uh, <laughs> the management, the cash flow, uh, we had a, we, we going back in time, we had a rule where we, we weren't allowed to hire or make any big investments in the business unless we had um, six months worth of working capital in the business at all times. We've actually increased that now to even more. So, you know, because you just don't know how, you, you just don't know which way the wind's going to blow. And I suppose in a business like yours as well, um, you know, you might have, there will be quiet periods, I suppose, um, where, um, you know, you have less to do. So understandably, you need to make sure that you can keep the lights on and you can keep, you know, people fed and watered. So no question. Uh, those are really, really good bits of advice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think for us, you know, the responsibility that we have to our clients, we can't for a moment not be ready to respond at all times. If we get a call in from our client, we have to have the team ready. We have to have our equipment ready. We have to have everything in place. So that's one thing that we could never, ever compromise is that. So we had to compromise on other things at that time. Um, but, you know, happy to say we are, we are, you know, we are reached our cruising altitude quite comfortably. Um, but that was definitely something that, you know, in the initial stages of our organization that we needed to think about. Um, and in COVID, luckily in COVID, we were OK. Um, but if you think about aviation, it's one of the biggest industries. It's the second industry um, that was hit the hardest, basically, we know, through this through this um, pandemic. And 80, 90 percent of our clients are aviation. So we anticipated a huge knock. Um, thankfully, um, we got through this um, quite, um, quite healthy and intact. Um, but at that time, we needed to make a lot of different, a lot of changes and decisions in anticipation of the worst. Um, thankfully, we didn't have to, you know, implement those. But um, but we had to think about that, and tough decisions were made. No, well, I think that's right. I think you sometimes have to make plans or have a, I suppose a, I wouldn't call it an exit strategy, but what do you call a sort of almost a red button uh, strategy? Yeah, business continuity. Yeah. Business continuity. It, it yeah. Ha has to be has to be done. Um, have you have you have you and Conrad had to make personal sacrifices, um, you, you know, in, with regards to growing the business? Because I certainly feel like 
Zahair and I have, and, and our and our old partners as well. We've particularly on the financial side, um, particularly to enable the business to have more working capital to see see ourselves through through more difficult times. What sort of personal sacrifices have you had to make to, uh, you know, w- without going too personal, but uh, without, you know, to enable um, the business yeah. to, 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 to be able to maintain and grow? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's um, where there's gains, there's always some level of sacrifice. And for us, um, there was a lot of personal sacrifice in terms of time together. You know, we, there's been, you know, months, um, days, years that we've been like ships in the night. Um, so there's personal sacrifices there in terms of time together. You know, um, when someone says to me, I want to start a business, I'm, I always say, well, you've got to have money to start a business. That is definitely, um, you know, I've heard entrepreneurs striking it lucky um, with, uh, you know, with funds um, and starting businesses with nothing. Um, but, you know, Conrad has, with his with his business or with his um, uh, partnership in the law firm, he's kept, um, you know, the things going, the, the, the pots cooking, basically, which allowed me to free myself to to risk building this business um so there's been some financial sacrifices we remortgaged the house we did all kinds of interesting things to make things happen um but i was lucky in the sense that i did have that first initial um injection of of finances when i responded to the to the product recall so um but again you know those things didn't it wasn't luck it was relationships it is a whole career that sort of amounted to that moment um but i do think that um if you planning to start a business, make sure that there's a level of income somewhere that you can rely on. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a gambler. I'm a risk taker. Conrad is the complete opposite. And we balanced each other out quite well. So we would look at the risks and make a decision together. Um, I think the key for me here was that he believed what I believed. Um, and because there's a cause bigger than us, um, our business has got a greater good to it that we both believe in. Um, and that makes it a lot easier to put things on the line um, if you believe in something. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think if you don't have that support at home, it's going to be a really lonely journey. I think, speaking from experience as well, that having that degree of um, alternative source of income certainly gives you the, the freedom and flexibility to go out and take the risks that you've been able to take. And having been on the other side of that, once or twice when when you are starting to really get down to the you know the bones as it were from a from a working capital perspective or from a financial pers- perspective that starts to breed desperation and you start to starts to make start to lead to bad decisions mm-hmm. and ultimately you know if you're trying to sell yourself or a service or a product People in general don't want to buy from desperate people. They can just smell it. You know, they can just smell it on you, and um, which sounds like a horrible expression, but it's it's just the way it's it is. True. It's that um, energy that I'm talking about. People feed yeah. off that energy. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, so definitely. if you so if you can go into these situations with a a modicum of of confidence and 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 not being too discom you know not not having too much discomfort, um, I, th- I think it certainly makes the starting up phase of the yeah. startup business yeah. a lot easier um and certainly as you know a business that i've invested in um i mean i can go the other way because i've seen a business that i've invested in where the chap was 
had a sideline business in renting out apartments in uh, in, in Edinburgh. And I think ultimately he that his his startup and he's a very capable guy. But the startup start because it wasn't producing the financial benefits to him that I think he needed or wanted. He started to pour much more of his energy into his rental business in, in Edinburgh. And he, I think he ultimately got distracted and the startup ended up, it actually ended up fine, but, it, you know, he sold it and I, I've got most of my money back. But, you know, ultimately, you know, because the startup wasn't able to generate what he wanted it to achieve for his own lifestyle, he then got distracted and had to start putting, yeah. investing his time yeah. and, and effort into this, I, uh, into this rental business. There's, there's no such thing as quick money. Um, yeah. You know, I, I really, really believe that if you want to start and grow a business, you've got to be in it for the long run. You've got to have grit, um, blood, sweat and tears. That's definitely um, something that I can attest to. <laughs> um, but I, I definitely also think that if you don't have the passion and the focus, if you've got an alternative income, that's good. That's well. Keep your day job while you grow your business. All of that is fine. But you've got to have you then you have to be prepared to work twice as hard. Um, and give twice the amount of energy and time to it. Um, but there's no shortcuts. You've got to you've got to work hard. You've got to bust your guts. That's for sure. Um, and in able to, to be able to do that, you've got to remain exceptionally focused. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's right. I love the the no shortcuts uh, commentary there. And again, something that I subscribe to. Um, that's why I don't that's why I don't play the lottery because I I I feel like you have to earn every penny um, in life. No question. Let's um, just on the subject of challenges. What do you think your next your biggest challenges or threats are in the next 18 months? Like, you know, looking at looking at the business, looking from a business perspective. Yeah. As the CEO, you probably expect me to go this, this and this. Um, but I would probably say for me, um, we are growing rapidly. And with that growth um, comes um comes a threat to our culture in, within our business. Uh, we've got an incredible team, an incredible culture, one of, that's very supportive. Um, you know, so I think maintaining that that culture within our organisation. There's no politics here. We are all in it, you know, for the long run. We all pull the wagon in the same direction. It is exceptionally um, wonderful to work in this organisation um, for me personally, but I know for our team, definitely. You know, people have a voice. People um, feel that they are empowered to make decisions. And I think as you grow as an organisation, that is something that I'm going to fight very hard to keep intact. Um, because it is what makes who we are as a company. We are able to give a level of excellence to our clients as if as if they are our only client. You know, we've got um, uh, a significant amount of clients now, um, over 70 retained um, uh, companies from all across the world, including government, oil and gas, aviation, universities. Um, so, but at this point, we are able to maintain that level of excellence for them as if they are our own client, our only client. And I think for me, the next challenge is to grow this business, but to try and keep all of that intact and um, to be able to make our clients feel um, that they have our undivided attention. Um, and I think that to me is going to be um, something that I'm going to be fighting for. I think that that is a really common experience in growing businesses and um again being ha having been in a very similar position having grown from a team of you know three founders 
and then the, the business at, at its sort of peak employment middle of last year with an Avermore was 34 people and th that is the thing you're always going to run the risk of of cultural dilution um I can't tell you off the top of my head exactly what the what the solution is um other than being incredibly selective about who you recruit um but do you have any particular ideas as to how you're going to manage that you know manage the threat of cultural dilution um so far we've been we've been really great at um finding people who are passionate about what we do and that greater good and if people um those who come and join the organization in you know historically have all shared that and i think that that is the key that what you've just mentioned is be so selective in who you bring into your work family i know people say don't call work a family but to me they are because they are you you, you spend 80 percent of your day with these people they've got to you know they've got to be people that you love spending time with people who you respect you don't always agree but there's that that level of respect um, that you have between yourselves. Um, so I think finding people who match that in personality um, is really important. Mm. And of course, uh, luckily in what we do as an organization, uh, you know, people don't do this for the money. Um, they really do this because there's a greater cause. Um, and yes, you know, the money follows and salaries and get paid and all of that. Um, but people generally do this because they're passionate. And I think, um, you know, for us to keep our focus on why we are doing what we are doing really helps us um, navigate the things that we shouldn't really be bothered about, you know, office politics and things like that. So I think it's that's really vital for me is to find that match in um, in who works with us. Perhaps you, you could um, take the take the candidates uh, horse riding and see how the horses respond to them. <laughs> <laughs> That's really a good idea, actually. <laughs> um, okay, so um, let's just just deep diving down into you as an individual. What's your, what would you describe as your superpower, and um, you know, how does that make people want to work with you over other people, for example? Oh, um, I would think my superpower in business would definitely be my passion for what we do. And I think that that's not something that you could fake. Um, you should truly believe in what you do as a business, um, because if if you've got any other motivation apart from your passion for what you are doing, whatever that is, what is you know what is that little thing that you are working for? Um, I think that's for me definitely a superpower. Is I truly truly love what we do. I truly feel like we are making a difference, and that's not something that anyone um, can fake. Um, so that is my superpower. But I would definitely say um, what comes hand in hand with that is finding people who share that passion. Um, I seem to have one great talent, and that is to find the right people who know more than what I do, um, who are passionate about what we do, who brings that expertise to the table, um, who are great to work with. There's no egos. People pull up the sleeves. They get the job done. Doesn't matter what it is. Um, I think that is something that I've learned. Um, I seem to have an eye for spotting people who are on the same sort of wavelength as me. I think that's great. I, I, I have to say it's. I hope I hope for the listeners it is the case as well. But it really does come across the level of passion you have about the business that you have, and and particularly what you do. Um, uh, I think certainly. 
that degree of passion, I'm sure when you meet clients or prospective clients will have a very significant impact on your ability to, to transact with them. I say transact, but, but for them to want to engage with your services, because if you've got someone so passionate and your team that's so passionate, particularly for the type of work that you do, uh, which obviously is absolutely essential as a prerequisite, um, it, you know, it, it will be very, very compelling uh, in terms of wanting to to work and engage with you. So, yeah, I, I, I very much see that. And I think I can and I hope, as I said, I hope our listeners can uh, can see can also appreciate that. Um, but again, without wanting to go into a monologue, but actually one of the things that I've I've picked up in the various self-help uh, books and podcasts that I've listened to is that if if you can find something that you love, something you what you love or enjoy um something you're good at and something that pays you well you you're set for life you you'll never work a day you actually never work a day in your life um and you'll have a fantastic life and it sounds to me at least that you've that's that's the position you find yourself in so um want to congratulate you on that uh you may not feel like that every day i'm sure but uh i think objectively that sounds like the position you're in um you, you mentioned your father um, briefly, um, and then sorry to hear about his passing, but um, which people or past events inspire you and give you the motivation to to succeed? I sounds like he might be one of those people, but um, uh, alongside him, who else is is there? Is there anyone else that provides you with inspiration or any certain events that have given you inspiration to to go on and be a success in life? Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, my father falls um, very much in the category that I would probably put um, at the top of my list, and that is making the people I love proud. Um, and it doesn't have to be success in business. It doesn't have to be, you know, what, whatever whatever it is that you do in life. I think that if, if you do that um, with the idea that the people you love and who love you to be proud of you, um, even in small things that you do every day. That's really what motivates me. I want people who I love to look at me and go, she did a good job there. Um, whether it is in, you know, picking up a piece of rubbish on the side of the road, whether it is how I spoke to someone, how I treat people in my life um, and how I built my business. You know, it, that's really what motivates me. And my dad definitely is probably at the pinnacle of that. Um, I think what motivates me um is having responded to incidents and seeing the difference that I can make. Even, you know, I've responded to an example, for instance, the Asian tsunami. You know, we we were a team of an international global team of um, support that went to, um, to Southeast Asia after the tsunami in 2004. And, um, and I realized that, you know, I played such a small role. Um, but all those little roles and all the things that people did uh, made such a difference. I recently read something that said there's no small roles, only small actors. Um, so if you have a small role um, and you're a small actor, you'll feel like it's small. But if you're a big actor, you'll know that that made a difference. So having seen the difference that I've made, um, you know, whether it's absolutely unnoticeable or whether it made a big difference, that's what motivates me is to want to do better for the affected people in disasters. Um, so that's the positive motivations. I have two sort of negative motivators, um, which I think will be interesting for everybody here who's ever faced some controversy. 
Um, I uh, early on um, when I wanted to start the business, so after I've responded to that incident, I went to a colleague who I've known in the industry, and I've presented my business idea to see if they want to, you know, help me or guide me or do this with me. Um, and the guy said to me after I spoke to him, he said to me, "Madam, you need a lot more desk time." You need a business plan. You need this. You need that. And he said, you are an ample on an elephant's ass. And I I was with someone else who was furious that he said that. But I wasn't so angry. I walked away and I thought, you know what? Have you ever had one of those pimples that debilitates your entire face? If I'm going to be a pimple on an elephant's ass, I'm going to be one of those. <laughs> so it really motivated me to go, I'll show you. And I till this day, and I don't want to say this out loud because this is not the advice anyone should follow, but I have never had a business plan. Um, I have followed my gut. Um, I have followed my heart. There's a point where you start going, okay, um, you know, I mentioned planning for cash flow and all of that. That all starts, you know, uh, becoming really, really important. Um, but uh, you know, I don't know. I think business plans are great. I think they should be happening. But I think business plans can sometimes stop you from doing what you want to do because it highlights all the reasons why it's not going to work. Um, another bit of uh, motivation that I had is one of our competitors who's a large player in the industry early on in, the, in um, the, my business wanted to stop us from building this business and they filed a frivolous lawsuit. And if he's listening today, you know who you are, but I really wanna thank him because there's no better motivator than hearing someone say, no, you can't. It was like injecting rocket fuel into my veins. Um, I was happy to have a little business and to do what I do, but when someone who was much bigger than me tried to bully me into submission and not to do it, um, that was the best gift that he could have ever given me. That's amazing. I, 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 I mean, it reminds me now never to uh, never to get in your way, Omri. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I'll never trample you. I, I'm not the uh, elephant. I'm the pimple. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just so you know it's funny that you you often get the um you know premier league teams and they'll you know some something that one of the the, the other team's players has said in the media or the coach has said in the media and they the, about that team and it's negative and all you're doing is you're providing fire for your team for for, for the team that you're up against so uh yeah i i think it's really really um really lovely experiences actually I, I know you say that they're negative but actually it's that kind of i'll show you sort of thing and um it's a gift it's a gift yeah yeah there's there's nothing like uh there's nothing like a bit of fuel for your fire in that regard and i think a lot of people i, I imagine a lot of our listeners who maybe have been reluctant about to set up a business or or to make uh, a significant change in their life and part of their part of the reason that they won't be doing that is because someone in in their personal life or in their business life has said something negative to them and they've taken that to heart and mm -hmm. i think what you've what you've described is uh, a situation where if someone tries to put an obstacle in your way well actually the obstacle is the way and 
thank them for it because that actually will provide them with uh, an opportunity. It's interesting that you got sued um, when you or you had the frivolous lawsuit um, when you got started. Um, ironically, Jack, who um, who I interviewed last week, he he's going through a similar thing with uh, with someone in his industry as, as he's just got started and he's been uh, going through legal proceedings. And as I said to him when he first mentioned it to me, I said that ultimately all he's, all they're trying to do is slow you down. Yeah, you're it's, ultimately it's you're just going to keep going. Yeah. It is a business strategy, and I've learned that that's part of business. Um, and of course, I I took it personally initially. Um, but then I realized, no, it's part of business. It's part of growth. And it's actually a compliment. If someone is suing you, um, I mean, that was the only time that we've ever experienced that. Um, and it wasn't fun. I'll tell you that. But it, it again, it just tested my grit, it tested my endurance levels. And it, it taught me a lot. Um, but I think it's an absolute compliment because they see you as a threat um, and they want to stop you. So uh, it's it's one of those things. But, you know, like I say, you know, someone tries to dampen your light you've got to shine brighter no absolutely I, I i agree with the point you make about it being a compliment particularly if they're trying to do it to slow you down or stop you um it's just because they see you as a threat mm-hmm. um no question about it and as i said to jack uh, and as you've kind of described it costs all it costs you it costs you time and money but it's almost like a it's like you, it, if you're a poker player it's your buy in to it, it's your buy in to play at the table so just just accept it and accept it and, and don't cry about it too much and and move on. And as I again, as I also, as I said to Jack, um, in 12 months time, it'll just it'll be just a problem that you had at the time and you're going to have different problems and varied problems. There's always problems, but it's just a, it's just one of the problems that you've encountered in, exactly. in your business life. It's part of business and you've got to learn from it. If you don't learn from it, then that is the waste. Yeah, absolutely. That's the waste. Um, Okay, so sort of starting to wind down a little bit now. Um, so we, some more standard questions that I like to ask some of my guests. Um, this is the the red pill blue blue pill question. So if you had to choose between being given all the knowledge and experience you have now, but aged let's say ten, or twenty five million pounds aged twenty five, which option would you choose and why? Hmm. 25 million sounds amazing, doesn't it? But I would definitely go for the knowledge at 10. Because I would, even if you gave me that 25 million at the age of 25, uh, I don't think I would spend it as wisely without the experience and the knowledge that I have now. Um, And with the experience and the knowledge that I have now, I probably would have doubled that by the age of 25. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that's the optimist in me talking. And the gambler, but yes, I think I'll go for the knowledge, very much. I I was actually faced uh, mentioning Jack again. He he actually gave me an option C, which is he wouldn't take either, and he would he would go as he is now, um, because he would he would he would not want the knowledge he has now aged ten, um, because he wants to have the uh, I suppose the innocence of his youth, but he also wants the opportunity to be able to make make the money on his own as well so he, he's almost saying that he's content with where he is so I like I I, I like I, I'm personally in the same camp as you I would want the knowledge and experience age 10 but yeah. uh but I think also as some of the people who've who've been faced with this question and I'm all and I just find it a really fascinating uh concept to debate 
that they also say look you don't there's you run the risk of missing out on the innocence of uh, of of your childhood and also the opportunity to make mistakes that you can learn from as a as a teenager and a young adult um which might which might be taken away from you um some people might say that's a good thing but um, i think i think they're overthinking it these these yeah. are just two options and i've chosen yeah. one so i but i definitely think that um if you if you if we apply um our our um, outlook on life or our adult reference to a 10 year old's mind then that is disturbing um but if you ask me purely business um and the knowledge that i have in humans and interacting with them and learning so much about myself and how to get the most out of what i how i spend my life um i would definitely want that knowledge at 10 yeah for, for sure i mean certainly there's that there's that element of the more if i start with that knowledge age 10 imagine how much i could have now um you know and, and exactly. what i could do what i could do with that um okay so this is actually quite a uh it's quite quite an interesting question especially in the context of some of the debates that i've been actually having with conrad of late uh around uh around capital punishment uh but what uh what is something that you believe that other people think is strange or dare i say insane I'll stick to business um, okay. so as to not to open a can of worms. Um, but I think um, in business, which people think is insane, is the value of paying myself last. Um, this is something that my dad taught me. He was a farmer and he said, you always have to pay the workers first. And um, in business, you know, in the Dragon's Den, one of the first questions that I ask is, are you paying yourself? You know, um, but I've always stuck to I'll pay myself last. Um, we've been in a position where um, we've we were able to pay um, pay myself. You know, I was able to pay myself, but I decided to put that back into the business and grow the business even further. So in business, I think people think it's insane that, you know, as the CEO, you don't pay yourself. But I always have maintained that, um, you know, I've got to eat last. Um, and I think that's been uh, pretty helpful. Do you know, that's that's uh, that again resonates very closely with what Zahir and I experienced as well when we were getting even more going. That there were many years where we took next to nothing out of the business. Uh, to enable the business to have the working capital to grow and um, fortunately we aren't in the same position now but certainly we took the same approach that you did which was we did pay ourselves last and um, I, I think that may not be an option for everyone for, for every business leader they may not have the benefit of you know as you experienced Conrad um, you know providing you with the air cover to to go and and set up a business like this um you know it, it is it is more unconventional but certainly it's an ex it, from my own experience it's something that i've gone through myself and um i, I think as much as, as much as anything else it is it's a function of some of the values your, your own personal values um and actually that sort of leads me into another one of my questions which is you know let's talk about your key personal values so what are those and particularly for business but also for life more generally that you value above all others um it's probably going to be the the most obvious really but for me uh kindness is very important um if you are 
committed, if you're considerate, if you're consistent, if you're kind, all of those things um, really make a difference. Uh, I think if if you can't find compassion um, for others and for yourself in life, um, that's pretty sad. So being kind is first and foremost um, how you approach life is what I would value very, very highly. Um, you know, if someone is kind, I could work with them. If someone is kind, I could be their friend. If someone is kind now they approach things, you know, they will get so much more respect in life. So that kindness is is very, very high up my list for sure. Um, I think honesty. Um, I don't like people lying to me um, and I will never lie to someone else. So that's something someone once said to me, it's an Aquarius trait, which I don't know if it is, but you know, I'm an Aquarian, so maybe. So honesty is something that I really, really, really rate highly, and it could be a massive deal breaker if there wasn't that mutual honesty. Um, and laughter, absolutely. I've learned that you can laugh about anything, but not with everyone. So you've got to have that discretion, of course. Um, but I, I I think laughing about things, um, laughing at yourself. Um, joking around with life doesn't matter. You know, we we respond to very you know very big things that are filled with um, uh, with devastation, and there's enough there's enough of that in life. So um, if you know if we can't go about our daily job cracking a few jokes, um, then I would find that very difficult. Yeah, I, I suppose some of the challenges that, or some of the situations that you find yourself in uh, professionally. Um, probably can give rise to to gallows humor from time to time so uh yeah um, yeah but but at the same time you have to um approach the jokes with a with the appropriate degree of sensitivity and you have to find the right line uh because otherwise you, it yeah, could be you, yeah. you, you you could get yourself into hot water there um but yeah. i i think that um you know the 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 kindness and honesty they're very valuable very valuable traits and um for sure, most people will, will for, for, for most people that will resonate, but I guess particularly for your line of business, the the kindness and the ability to empathize with with people is an absolute essential prerequisite um, to be the success that you are professionally. Um, and for sure that that comes across without question. Um, again, on the personal note, what are some misconceptions that people have about you um whether that's um you know uh, you know it, what what do people assume about you that actually when they get to know you is actually not the case um is, is anything kind of come to mind yeah um i think uh i think people sometimes think that i am a pushover and coming back to kindness kindness is not a weakness kindness doesn't mean that you can't say no um, there are two different things. So I think, um, you know, I'm very practical and very reasonable and and very kind, um, but uh, I'm not a pushover. Um, and that is the misconception. Um, once actually, uh, when we left the, the pimple on the elephant's ass uh, meeting, one of the other guys said to me, you are you're, you're like a lovely doormat. It says it says welcome. And then people just wipe their feet off on the mat. Um, and I think he tried. Well, he was trying to say to me, you know, you walked into that meeting, you was, you were, you know, you, you seemed like a pushover, and don't don't let that guy speak to you like that. Um, but you know, being dignified in that meeting, being kind, and leaving, you know, with my head held high, um, what they couldn't see is what was going on in my head. 
Um, and uh, and I think that is the misconception is uh, is that I am I'm a pushover when I'm quite the opposite. Well, um, I think we may have dispelled that myth uh, <laughs> after the, after this conversation. Um, but I, I I agree that there is. I think particularly when it comes to like negotiations, for example, um, you can be successful in a negotiation by by trying to connect with people and being empathic. Um, but there's also you have to have a line and you have to be able to to, to turn around and say no. Um, and I think that, you know, and I think that unquestionably that they are not, you know, just because someone is kind, just because someone is nice doesn't mean that they don't have a, a steep, they don't have steely qualities about them. Just with, uh, because it's just sprung into my mind. Um, when, have, have you ever encountered any situations where you've, um, you know, when you've been helping pe uh, people on the sort of, um, you know, let's say an, an aviation disaster, using that as just the most obvious example, where you've, you've had to say, you've kind of had to say no to a uh, to someone you've been assisting as in they've asked too much of you and you actually have to turn around and say look I, I have to draw the line here I can't I, I can't go further I can't help you uh, any further with this um have you uh, have you have you encountered situations like that where you you've effectively had to say no and um have a difficult conversation uh, I mean they're all they're obviously naturally difficult because of the nature of the business but where you've had to have a sort of firm conversation with um, someone that you've been helping? Uh, yes, multiple times. Um, and I think that is um, uh, that is sort of just the nature of human nature. So um, what, what we've seen in disaster is that um, whatever was there before it happens gets magnified. So you still get people who will want too much. You will still get people who are unkind. You will still, it, it, it doesn't, it's not the disaster that makes that happen. It is just magnified by the incident. So um, you do get people who are exceptionally demanding to the point of being unreasonable. And you are caught between this. You want to help them and give them as much as you can while they are going through this. Um, but there's a point where you have to say, this is too much. You are asking too much. This is not reasonable. And I can't divulge um, certain uh, scenarios because it's actually, well, maybe I can. I'll try to be a little bit more um, uh, cagey. With, the, with It was a plane crash and the families wanted a memorial that was made out of gemstones. So a memorial is a reasonable, a reasonable request, of course. You know, everybody wants that. And it's really, really, really important and part of humanitarian response to have this very important symbol of recognition, of memory um, of the incident. Um, and, you know, that's that's vital. But to have the demand of having gemstones, you know, it crafted out of gemstones, um, that is where the line had to be drawn. It is generally easier because, it, you know, the no comes from the insurers um, or the no comes from, you know, there's a, there's a, a bigger, bigger authority above you that says no. Um, but you, I've, we've come across that, you know, many times where you have to go, this is not reasonable. We understand that you're going through a difficult situation, but your request, you know, isn't reasonable. So and it's hard for you to say that to people when their entire lives has just been, mm -hmm. um, you know, disrupted in a way that 
you know, they could never have imagined. Um, so it's finding that balance. And sometimes um, saying yes is no skin off your nose. Their request may be unreasonable, but saying yes is okay, you know, and it's just weighing those situations up. And it's often, you know, on a case by case basis where we will sit down and make a decision as a, you know, as a panel. Um, but some requests are definitely unreasonable and we have to push back on those. It's not easy, but um, but that happens. Um, I I can't imagine those are easy conversations to have. So you you must have quite the skill and deftness of touch when it comes to delivering those messages in a way that leaves people, if not satisfied, but at least, you know, not, you know, not upset or disappointed uh, or, or angry. Um, which they may still well end up being, yeah. but you know, but you, you know, you, you 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 obviously have a talent for navigating these these challenging scenarios. Um, and I think that's where the that's where having having understanding and compassion um, for someone else's position really helps you. Difficult conversations are exactly that; they are difficult. And if you felt comfortable doing them, then that's it says something about you, really. Um, so having those difficult conversations and in business in general, you know, you've got to make peace of the fact that your stomach is going to be churned up for days before you have to have the conversation. <laughs> and that's just that. And, you know, don't always feel good walking away from that conversation. Um, and that's that's where I say you've got to have that resilience um, in business is to understand that that's part of the job. Yeah, I, I think that, I think that's right. Um, my coach. Lloyd has, uh, has has something called the fo the fourfold way, um, and sort of a list of you know a, a list of rules about how you engage with people and how you have how you go into conversations, um, you know. And I think that you know that to 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 summarise it, it's it's basically you need to sort of be yourself, be open, transparent, be honest, tell the truth. But I think crucially. The, the most important part of it is be be open to outcome so don't go into you know you're going into a conversation trying to predetermine an outcome um does you know it doesn't necessarily work to your advantage you know that that will yeah. that can potentially backfire on you um so and i think you know your ability to empathize and have that have that dialogue with them and it just allows the machinations of the conversation the emotions just to to work the, themselves through because i yeah. would i be would i be right in thinking that ultimately behind a lot of the requests or unreasonable requests is that someone people just wanting to someone to talk to and someone to, to and to have their feelings heard is is does that is that really a, a some of the biggest part of the engagements that you have with with some of the people that you that you have to work with yeah, and I mean, the, the incidents that we've responded to um, hasn't always equated to, you know, um, loss of life. Yeah. Um, and they were just as challenging in terms of navigating emotion and anger. Um, and I think, uh, you know, people do want to be heard. Um, but if you if you make them feel heard in an authentic way because you are listening to them, um, and you are responding to that um, really helps a situation. And like you said earlier, it doesn't always mean that everybody's walking away happy and dandy. Certainly not. <clears throat> but um, it makes it easier if you can. Um, I always say, you know, the best way to 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 be to be able to have a healthy opinion, you've got to have two complete opposing ideas in your head at the same time. 
um, you have to be able to look at both sides to be able to, you know, to navigate yourself through it. So um, I think that's really uh, helpful. Um, but to to make people feel heard, you really have to listen with your eyes, with your ears, with your heart. Um, and if you don't do that because you've got a certain outcome that you are focused on, um, they will know that and they will feel that. Mm. So fascinating. I've, I feel like we could talk for for a, a, a very long time about this. Um, so last couple of questions, uh, if uh, if we can. Um, first of all, and I, and I think you've touched on, you've provided a lot of business and life hacks already, but, you know, is, is there any one particular business or life hack you want to share with the listeners um, in, in sort of 90 seconds or less um, that you, you think are, is most important above all others? Um, only one. As many as you like. If you've got more, you can have as many. Okay. Um, wake up early, work hard. Um, stop overthinking things. Get off your butt and do it. Um, people spend so much time thinking and wanting and wanting, you know, just do it. Pick up the pen, pick up the phone, just do it. Um, get people you trust and delegate if you want to see your business grow. You need to really know your topic, know your stuff, educate yourself. No one should know your business better than you. Um, there should be no option B. Again, this sounds really crazy, but that's how I work. I never have an option B. I never have a plan B. Um, I focus on plan A and I put all my energy into it and I make that work. Um, but the biggest one in business is relationships are everything. Absolutely everything. And when I say relationships, I mean face to face time with your customers, with your team, um, with your partners, with your suppliers. That's vital. People well, buy people. Well, I, I think that last uh, that last point around relationships, particularly the business that businesses that I'm in or I've been involved in, uh, particularly in the real estate industry, is is so relationship driven. Um, I always like to think of it. I've always thought of it as something that was even more important in real estate. But I think that's naive of me to think so. I think that that actually that's just business. If you want to sell to people, you've got to have relationships with them, with yeah. people. You know, people buy from people, as you say. Um, I I really like the kind of just do it mantra. Um, you talked about uh, you talked earlier about the, the striving for perfection as being something that you know something that you struggle with. And I think that that is a that is a common issue for a lot of um, people in business, not necessarily just entrepreneurs, but people in business more generally. And there's that expression which is don't let uh, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And I certainly think that some of the legal contracts that uh, that myself and Zahair have have, uh, have signed up to, we've probably tried to over perfect and overprotect ourselves in those legal contracts. But we probably lost out on six to nine months worth of business while we've been negotiating those contracts to make them yeah. to make them a reality. So like from my own perspective, the actually throwing that caution to the wind and just doing it is, a, I think, a really good bit of advice. Um, exactly. I've, there's, there's two lessons that I've learned. Um, the one was um, this was actually to do with real estate. We were um, about to to buy some real estate. At some point in our lives, Con and I, and um, one of the guys that I can't remember 
the relationship that we had with him, um, but he, he was sort of an advisor at that point. And he said, when it comes to real estate, you it's like jumping you know out of an aircraft with a parachute you can assess the altitude and this and that and the wind and this but at some point you just have to pull you've got to pull that you know the the strap to let the parachute go at some you can you can carry on and carry on but at some point you have to pull you've got to make the decision but when it comes to my business particularly in aviation um there is a point where you you look at the aircraft and you look at the safety of the aircraft um and you can do so much but if you are so overly risk averse, that aircraft will never take off because there's always a chance that it's going to crash. So at what point are you going to go? We are living with this risk. I'm going to take this plunge. Um, no pun intended. Um, but the aircraft has to take off. You can plan and strategize and you can write your stuff. And But at some point, um, the plane has got to take off. And I think uh, that is what frustrates me in business is that, you know, I remember saying to one of our team, they said, can we just have a process in place for this? And they are completely correct. You do have to have processes. You do have to have all of these things in place at some point. But I remember saying to them, my process is just do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my process. Just get the job done. Um, so it's not when I say that it's not at the expense of putting concrete foundations in place. Um, it is not at the expense of that. I'm not just saying, you know, just, you know, just jump out of that plane. Um, what I'm saying is that at some point you've got to say to yourself, when am I going to stop overthinking and just do it? Yeah, I think that's I think it's bang on. You, you clearly are a very instinctive person. Um, but I think ultimately the only way, you know, if, if you want to go and run a marathon, ultimately, what are the first things you need to do? You need to put one foot in front of the other. You can't just yeah. you're never going to think yourself, think your way to winning to, to doing a marathon. At some point, you actually just have to put one foot in front of the other and get going. Um, so no question. Right. Final question. Uh, just talking about reading. Obviously, you're well read, learned, learned person. Uh, what book would you recommend to listeners that's had a profound impact on your life? Um, there's so many, my goodness, but there's one that I find myself quoting a lot, um, not only um, because of the work that I'm in, but because there's a lot of profound um, lessons in this book. It's a textbook and it's called The Politics of Protection. I studied an incredible disaster response course through Harvard. It was six grueling months of my life with two babies on the hip <laughs> was one of those. Um, but I absolutely loved it. Um, and one of the things that really stood out was this textbook. Um, it is yeah, The Politics of Protection, and it's by Elizabeth Ferris. And it is about the limits of humanitarian action. And it boils down to the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting, very, very interesting book. Um, but it's about to what point can you help people into helplessness? So for someone like me who wants to help everybody and, you know, try to make the world a better place, that really changed my outlook in life is it's the whole do you fish, do you give them fish or do you teach people to fish? Um, the textbook actually looks at providing humanitarian response in disasters or when people are, are faced with, um, you know, uh, conflict areas. Do you arm people to defend their own right to be in a place or do you give them um you know do you give them a safe haven to become a refugee in your country for instance and it's a very very complex topic 
Um, but there is a point where helping someone becomes debilitating and not empowering them to help themselves. So that is in life, um, in business, um, but it's certainly in the work that we do is um, at what point do you pull humanitarian assistance out and empower people to help themselves and find that resources of support within their own communities? Um, so that was a fantastic book. And I think about that and quote that quite a lot. That sounds like a very, very interesting, obviously very deep and intense book and quite specialised to your particular field of, of work. But are there presumably there are quite a lot of lessons that are in that in that book that go beyond your, your day, your day job and you're able to apply in, in your daily in, in your daily life. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. And it, and it's that lesson of um, empowering people to um, to do things for themselves. And also um, for me personally, is that I'm the only person that's accountable for where I am in life um, to go through life, blaming others or expecting people to do things for you or to rely on others um, for their support and their help instead of taking ownership of um, of that yourself. Um, and allowing others to take ownership of that for themselves um, is an important lesson in life, I think. Um, there is a point where people need help, and that's exactly, you know, why we do what we do. You know, there's a point where you need people to help you, um, and you rely on that. And as human race, that's something that we are really, really good at. Um, but in your day-to-day -day life, outside of the big humanitarian disasters, I think that there's, a, there's an underlying lesson there, is that I'm accountable for me, um, and... The buck stops with me, really, and I can't uh, feel entitled to other people's help. I shouldn't be in a position where I am um, relying too much on others. I, I need to do things for myself, um, and I think that's uh, that's vital. And something that I also try my children to um, to learn is, you know, where you what you do in life, your wins are your wins, you know, and your losses are your losses, um, and you've got to make uh, you know make peace with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I subscribe to that, you know, particularly that last point around taking ownership of the outcomes that you have in in, in your life are entirely your own. And you you can't blame, I think particularly as an adult, you can't blame anyone but yourself, but you can't praise anyone but yourself either. I do think yeah. that, interestingly, I think a lot of people might be might be open to accepting the blame, but not necessarily taking the credit um for for their wins um but there are also people who go the other way uh yeah. and perhaps more than happy to take the credit for the wins but when it when something goes wrong it's always someone else's fault and um yeah. i guess these are maybe not people that you want to have around you uh and the people who you know the people who you want around are people who ultimately are accountable and they take yeah. accountability for, for the outcomes that they have in their lives. Yeah, for sure. And and I think taking ownership of um of the failures is vital, but also um and for me that's a very individual thing, is that if if there's been, you know, if there has been a, a failure, that's mine and I own that. But if there's a win, I generally know that that wasn't only mine. And I think that's important is to look around you and see who gave you that leg up um when you needed it. So, um, so yeah, it's it's a little bit of a you know a separation in this book that talks about humanitarian aid and bringing it back to something that seems suddenly quite trivial, uh, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives. But I think, um, you know, these big concepts can be applied 
um, to small things and small concepts can be applied to big things. Um, and I definitely think that, uh, you know, in, in our business, for sure, I said, you know, I've managed to find passionate people. I know very much how valuable they are um, and to have by my side. And when there's credit to be shared, um, you know, I look to them first because uh, they helped us get where we are. Well, I think we've we've just about run out of time, but Elmarie, this has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, you're a you know you're a fascinating person, and uh, hopefully a great inspiration to to many. And um, I hope those of you who have enjoyed uh, enjoyed listening to you uh, can find ways to, you know can find you. Uh, so if you want to share perhaps some of your social media profiles or something like that, where where can people best find you if they yeah. want to to reach out and connect with you after this? LinkedIn would probably be the best or um, our company website, which is www.gocrisis.com. Um, but, you know, happy for anyone to reach out and talk to to me. No problem. I love that. Um, but this is so different to what I do every day. So thank you for the opportunity. I've never had someone ask me about my business. And it's quite a, an interesting angle to stop and think about that. So that's been really fun. Thanks for that. No, it's, it's it genuinely has been fascinating, and um, you know, despite having known you for for quite a few years, I've I've learned an enormous amount about you as well, which uh, I might not otherwise have had the opportunity to do so. And it's for me, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. So, uh, Elmarie Marais, thank you very much, and go well. Thanks a lot. See you, Michael. Bye. A big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www.avonmorecapital.com avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.